Welcome to the Florida Roundup. Thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Governor Ron DeSantis is calling on Florida lawmakers this session to permanently enact a number of bans on COVID-19-related mandates in the state. Yes, DeSantis announced his proposed legislation earlier this week at a press conference in Panama City Beach. He shared the stage with a local dermatologist known for spreading misinformation about the COVID vaccine. The governor's proposal would make permanent a number of temporary measures that the Republican-controlled legislature passed during the 2021 special session. Now, those measures are currently set to expire June 1st. They include banning masks and COVID-19 vaccine mandates in schools, along with COVID-19 passports, as well as prohibiting employers from making hiring and firing decisions based on vaccination status. We begin the hour here on the Florida Roundup with a closer look, and we want to hear from you, Florida. What do you think of permanently implementing these COVID bans? Should that be a top priority for legislators this session? Give us a call. We are open statewide, 305-995-1800, or tweet us at Florida Roundup. Let's welcome Stephanie Colombini. She covers health for WSF and Health News Florida and joins us now. Stephanie, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And we're also joined by Dr. Nancy Starts, founding member of Doctors Fighting COVID. Thank you so much, Doctor. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Stephanie, I want to begin with you. Governor DeSantis has spoken out against mask mandates and vaccine requirements in the past. Uh, What's different about his latest proposal? Well, like you mentioned, the you know, the big difference is to make these bans on, you know, vaccine and mask requirements permanent. We had that temporary rule that they're set to expire. DeSantis wants to keep them in place, also wants to expand sanctions on businesses who do make hiring or firing decisions based on vaccine status or wearing a mask. So, you know, uh, portion those punishments. And then another thing he wants to do, and this is something that failed to pass last year, He wants to ban medical boards from reprimanding doctors for expressing their views, what DeSantis calls free speech, but what a lot of people call spreading misinformation. You know, if you're a doctor is tweeting false claims about COVID-19 vaccines, for example, DeSantis wants to prevent medical boards from from taking action against those physicians. Mm -hmm. So in the meantime, COVID is simmering away in the background. Uh, What's the latest on cases? I mean, there was a bit of a spike over the holidays, right, as expected. But what can you tell us about the latest numbers um, and what's behind what's happening with those numbers? Yeah, so things are definitely still elevated. We did see a dip. The latest update from the CDC was that this past week, Florida reported just over 28,000 cases. So that's down from nearly 32,000 last week. So that's good. And there's also fewer people currently hospitalized with a a diagnosis of COVID-19. About 2,600 people as of the last update. So that's down from over 3,000 last week. So we are seeing things come down. Down, that's you know a positive sign. It could mean that the the holiday spike we have seen of everybody gathering over the last month might be calming down. These numbers are still more than twice as high as what we saw in early December. So definitely still a significant increase. What's not clear is what will happen in the coming weeks because we do have this new subvariant. It is a uh, XBB15, formerly, it's informally known as the Kraken variant, the most transmissible variant yet. And we'll see it's, you know, quickly gaining a a foothold in the United States, especially in the Northeast. So as that uh, gets a stronger foothold here in Florida, we'll see, um, you know, will cases continue maybe to go back up as we move into February? Will we see another spike or even just cases remaining at these elevated levels? So, this Kraken variant sounds scary, right? It's a, a terrifying nickname, but and, and it's very transmissible, as you point out. How sick is it making people? Do we have a handle on you know how serious the illnesses are? So 
good news so far, we don't have enough data to say anything, you know, definite, but it doesn't seem to be making anybody any sicker. You know, you hear Kraken and it's the sea monster. I think that ties maybe to its transmissibility and it is good at escaping, uh, you know, immune protection, whether that's vaccine mm -hmm. or infection acquired immunity. You know, any immunity is still better than none, uh, which scientists repeatedly stress. But, um, you know, it is possible to get infected with this virus, even if you have, you know, that prior protection, it does not as of yet seem to be making people more sick, like say what we saw with the Delta variant. So that's promising. Booster intake, as you've done some reporting on, Stephanie, has not been great in Florida. Uh, what does that mean for how the state responds to new strains of COVID like Kraken and whatever comes behind it? Yeah, um, well, Florida does have one of the worst booster rates in the country and, and, you know, in vaccine uptake really since the first series of vaccines, um, you know, booster rates have been low in Florida, even among seniors, the most vulnerable group. But I think what we're seeing, as we just heard, you know, Governor DeSantis wanting to make permanent bans on, you know, vaccine and mask mandates is the state really doesn't have much of a response. Uh, you know, the there isn't really any action we can expect to be taken. We just ride through these waves as we have the past couple of years. I don't expect any new restrictions or public health measures to go into place. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, that means more people will continue to get sick and die. We've had over 84,000 Floridians die from this virus and over 20,000 of those were in this last year. You know, so that's important to be mindful of. Uh, I think as we move on with our lives, a lot of people, you know, think that, this pandemic is over and, and we're reminded every day that it is not. On the one hand, you know, those booster rates are not great. Vaccine uptake maybe could be better, but you do have counties doing what they can to try and encourage vaccination, especially for vulnerable populations. In Sarasota County, for example, you reported on their strategy to help people get vaccinated. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, Sarasota is offering in-home vaccinations right now. We've seen some other counties do that throughout the pandemic, where if you can't get to a clinic or a doctor's office, pharmacy, what have you, uh, the county will send workers to come to you and have health workers inject you right there in your home. And that's for the COVID-19 vaccines in Sarasota, but also flu shots and pneumonia vaccines, which is really important for seniors. Um, pneumonia is especially you know, deadly or likely to, to put a senior in the hospital than compared to a, a other adults. So um, yeah, that's a, a positive sign to see a, a county like that offering a, an easier way for people to get protection. 305-995-1800. We're live statewide here in the noon hour on the Florida Roundup talking about the governor trying to make permanent bans on all COVID mandates. Kendra in Jacksonville. Hi, Kendra. Go ahead. Good morning, Melissa, or good afternoon, Melissa. Sure. Uh, well, regrettably, Floridians are about to get sicker and dumber, thanks in uh, no small part to Deplorable DeSantis doubling down on doing damage and duping us. Uh, one problem is this hostility toward public health and science. As you likely know, over 80,000 people have died in Florida due to COVID. All hospitals, medical professionals, and science labs seem to be in agreement, whereas uh, DeSantis seems to counter, counter their professional advice and opinions. Uh, secondly, having uh, having denied, uh, having spearheaded the denial by the Florida Department of Education recently to allow an AP course, Advanced Placement History course in African American History in the high schools, Florida students are not going to be competitive when when applying to college out of state. But that's okay because they'll be too sick or dead to attend anyway. Thanks, Melissa. All right, Kendra, uh, and you're referring to another big story from the week, uh, removing an African-American studies course, which uh, we've talked about those educational issues quite a bit on the show, and we'll continue to, but we're getting uh, views from all over the state coming in on the phone lines. Vito in Kissimmee. Hi, Vito. Go ahead. Hey, hey, Melissa. All right. Just like the young lady just, just said, uh, this, this, this clown, uh, Governor Weekat, um, trying to spread his Nazism throughout this uh, Floridians. Uh, I, I don't understand what this man got going on, but in any in any individual in their right mind won't think like this man does. He's getting paid by Ken Griffin to spread this bull crap all over the town. The 
the man's a fraud and it's going to be exposed. Anybody who follows Trump like this, he's not smart. So this is going to hit a brick wall. So, so FYI, he just sprayed Nazi throughout the floor. It's 305-995-1800. It's no secret uh, that the governor incites strong opinions. Let's also point out he was reelected by nearly 20 points and has a lot of supporters for these policies. As we go now to Dr. Nancy Stotts of the Florida-based group Doctors Fighting COVID. Dr. Stotts, good to be with you. Thanks, Melissa. Good to be with you, too. All right. We heard some opinion from callers around the state just a bit ago. Your take as a physician who's focused on bringing down COVID rates and saving lives in the state. What's your reaction to this new policy proposal? Right. Well, briefly, I think the policy per se is a little underwhelming because we're so far into this process. Many people have been vaccinated, thankfully. We do have some natural immunity out there. And I feel some of this is simply just baiting language. In psychology, we would call it projection or in layman's terms, gaslighting. He's trying to get an attaboy from his very uh, faithful following. And of course, they dutifully uh, provided that for him. But I think I would like to switch the narrative, if possible, to three main points. One is that Florida did not do well with COVID. That is a political narrative and people who support the governor seem to have accepted this as fact, and it is not true, and I'm happy to tell you why I believe that's not true. The second point is that vaccines in general are extremely safe and that the bottom line is those who are vaxxed will have a decreased risk of severe disease and death than those who are not, period. And finally, dis and misinformation is a huge problem, and this governor and his staff have elevated fringe and extreme doctors to such a degree that we are just rolling out the welcome mat for extreme views because please understand most physicians 90 to 95 percent 100 percent back all of these vaccines and in fact are vaccinated so these represent very fringe thoughts let's go back to the first point you made your contention that florida did not do well in terms of fighting COVID and saving lives. Uh, When you look at some of the data, it seems as though Florida was about in the middle of the pack. Uh, Tell me more about the data and and how the state has fared overall in terms of preventing disease, saving lives, uh, keeping people healthy. Right. So once you get into statistics, it can get very wonky very quickly. So there's mortality and morbidity. Mortality is death, obviously, and morbidity is illness. And illness is so much harder to track and follow. And I'm just going to put that to the side. But please understand, for every death, there are scores of people who got sick and who many of whom have long-term problems. So please keep that in mind when I talk about these mortality statistics. First of all, Florida was 13th on the rate of death, but we are also the biggest state. So we had a lot of folks die. Biggest a lot. state. And in fact, uh, I'm sorry, biggest of those state. top 13, okay. of the top 13. Okay. But we are the largest of the top 13. We're the, we're the third largest by population. So I think the comparison isn't between Florida saying, oh, look, we did better than Wyoming because that's a much smaller pool and it's really not comparable. I think it's much more helpful to look at California, for example, or Texas. California has 39 million people. We have 22 million people. They had 102,000 deaths. We have now exceeded 84,000 deaths. And those are just the reported deaths. And that's another whole topic. But my point is with roughly 56% of the population, we have 85% or 83% of the deaths we did not do well. I would give us a C minus. And the other reason it's really terrible is that most of our deaths occurred in that third wave in the summer, fall of 21, when vaccines were available. And I would encourage all your listeners to look into the NBC News report uh, describing how deaths among Republicans were almost 76% higher between March 2020 and December 2021. And this is a direct reflection. This is not meant to be ref- uh, political. It's a direct reflection of vaccine hesitancy. Okay, so then, Dr. Stotts, in your view, what would 
make the most sense in terms of combating this latest COVID surge, as we heard Stephanie call it, uh, doctors are referring to it as the Kraken, a really nasty subvariant. What do you think Correct. the state should be doing? Well, I think we continue to do poorly again compared to a state like California. California is 19% boosted, has had the booster shot, whereas Florida is less than 11% boosted. So we know there have been over 13 billion of these vaccines given. We have the data. Vaccines are not 100% safe. Nothing is 100% safe. But we know without a doubt that these are very safe, very effective. The disease has much greater risks than the vaccine. We need to be encouraging folks to get boosted as long as there isn't a contraindication for them. And encouraging is, is not the same as a mandate. Uh, the governor saying there, there should be no no mandate. So what about that position that he's taking? Where are you on that? I don't believe mandates are required. What's what's sad about this is it, he's removing the individual businesses, business owners may want to have a mandate if they have a particular line of work. For example, uh, they care for the terminally ill. They care for uh, folks receiving chemotherapy or other high-risk groups. And maybe that is a reasonable expectation that you be vaccinated. And as a patient or uh, uh, someone who receives the treatment, it's it would be helpful to know that th that, that staff had been vaccinated. So I can imagine people who are upset about the fact that they cannot do this. Having said that, we are now at a point where we're probably 90 to 95% have either been vaccinated or sick. And so all of this comes to me just after the dust has settled. This is like going on a, a cross-country trip and then the last mile saying, okay, let's take our seatbelts off now. Um, okay, so what? I, I just, I'm underwhelmed with the whole thing. I think this was an attempt, like I said, to just get some a press day and mm. uh, he's just elevating extreme views in my view. Uh, one more question before we go to break. We talked about uh, medical figures with extreme views who have spread false or disinformation about this pandemic uh, rallying around the governor, standing on stage with him. Physicians such as you who are part of this group, Doctors Fighting COVID, have called this dangerous. Why? Well, for a few reasons. One is we you saw how we lost more people in that third wave than any other state when we could have we could have prevented those deaths. So that that's the first and foremost. We could have prevented a lot of illness. That's secondly. And third, by encouraging this vaccine hesitancy, we're seeing now things like childhood vaccination rates dropped 2% from 2021 to 2022, from 95% to 93%. That doesn't sound like a lot, 2%, but that represents tens of thousands of children. So we've now had a measles outbreak in Ohio and in Minnesota. We had a polio outbreak in New York. And I am very concerned that this type of messaging has real public health ramifications. We'll continue the conversation here on the Florida Roundup with our guests and your calls. Stay on the line, everyone. It's 305-995-1800. As we talk about the governor's proposal to make permanent bans on COVID restrictions and vaccine mandates, what are your thoughts as a new subvariant rears its head? That's next here on the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio.
Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. I'm Matthew Pitty in Tampa. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. As we continue the conversation with Dr. Nancy Stotts of Doctors Fighting COVID and Stephanie Colombini of Health News Florida, lots of calls, Matthew. Yeah, lots of calls. Uh, let's actually hear from somebody who's been waiting on the line for a little bit. I think we've got Michelle in Jacksonville. Michelle, are you there? Yes, I am. All right, Michelle, what's on your mind? Hey there. Um, actually, I'm a nurse of 40 years, and I actually have COVID right now. Um, mm-hmm. And first time with COVID, I was so careful. And, you know, they say, I guess everyone's going to get it eventually. But I'll tell you, it's the sickest I've ever been. Um my question is, uh, there was a recent story on Time Magazine, and when you Google bivalent stroke risk today, Reuters is saying U.S. FDA, CDC, see early signal of possible Pfizer bivalent COVID shot linked to stroke. But then you look at CNBC, CDC says it's, quote, very unlikely Pfizer booster carries stroke risk for seniors mm-hmm. after launching review. There's so much mixed messages in myself. I'm looking at it going, what I've had on my boosters and up to the bivalent, but now I want to get the bivalent after I'm complete this COVID. Um, yeah. What do I do? You know, there's so many mixed messages. And if I'm a professional, the layman out there is going to go, wow, what what, what do I believe anymore? Right, yeah. Michelle, thanks so much for your call. Sorry to hear your bout with COVID. doesn't sound too pleasant. hope you feel better soon. Uh, Dr. Starts, let me put that to you. There is misinformation out there. What is what are you hearing in terms of risk of vaccine versus the risk of COVID, and how do you balance those things out? Right. Well, it's a, it's a great point, and I appreciate Michelle's uh, call, and I do hope you feel better. Uh, know that your illness is going to go be less severe because you did have those vaccines, first of all. Secondly, we have the least amount of information on the bivalent because it's the newest, and the uptake has not been as as heavy so we don't have as many numbers however to everyone's satisfaction this was tested and found to be very safe Uh, there have been time and time again four studies put forth on places like social media that bring up things like cardiomyopathy when the risk of cardiomyopathy is much higher with covid than with the covid vaccine in addition there are cardiovascular risks associated with a COVID infection. There happens, there, there, there is some sort of clotting uh, aberrancy that happens that increases those kinds of risky things. Mm-hmm. So it is, un, it is, again, the bottom line take home message is, unless you have a particular history of a reaction to a vaccine, that you being vaccinated will decrease your risk of se- severe disease and death. And we've seen this across all states, all countries. So I would, if you have had COVID very recently, you don't need to get the booster for several months at least. Uh, they're saying around three to five months of protection you'll get. And th- But after that point, it's probably a good idea to get the booster. Mm. Tom in Pembroke Pines. Hi, Tom, go ahead. Hi, how are you? All right. Yeah, um, regarding... Uh... Uh, Ron DeSantis, I think we should start calling him Comrade DeSantis. Uh, the stuff he's been proposing sound like communist regimes like Russia and China. It's ridiculous to, to ban a protection for your people. Uh, I, as a, a recently retired firefighter working under COVID, we, I saw firsthand how safe the vaccines were when uh, they first came out. 500 of us got it at our department right away. I worked for a large department, and uh, soon after that, you know, more. And nobody got had any problems from the vaccine. And when we got vaccinated, it, it dramatically increased our protection because uh, we had members getting sick occasionally, even with uh, wearing masks and uh, frequent hand-washing and all the steps we were doing to, uh, you know, prevent us from getting it. But, but as soon as we all got vaccinated, that went, it went and, down dramatically. And were you mandated to be vaxxed? Or, because what the governor is saying is he's not banning the vaccination, but any mandates. Were you mandated? Um, we were uh, not mandated, but... Uh, it was strongly encouraged 
that we get the vaccine. Okay. Uh, and we didn't see any reason not to. Uh, there were a few people that were hesitant like at, at, at first, but when they saw that, you know, a few hundred people got it and not one person had a problem with it, you know, pretty much, you know, everybody got vaccinated then. All right, Tom, thanks. Stephanie Colombini, Health News Florida. Uh, that caller is saying this is hearkening back to communist regimes, sees it as extreme. That's not likely, though, to be the case in Tallahassee, is it, when the legislature think, convenes? Right. Well, and I think, you know, they're arguing they're fighting communist regimes that mandate things like that. But, um, you know, DeSantis is very popular right now. He is this uh, projected to be the Republican frontrunner, to be, uh, you know, a presidential nominee in 2024, won by a landslide. We have this super majority in the, the legislature uh, of Republicans right now um, who supporting whatever he wants, DeSantis, you know, is good for them politically at the moment. So I think, uh, you know, there's a good chance that these measures he wants to push through this session, even ones that weren't successful last time, have a better shot this time around, just given the political climate. Thank you so much. Uh, that's Stephanie Columbini with Health News Florida. Stephanie, thanks so much for your reporting and uh, for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. Also been listening to or talking with Dr. Nancy Starts with Doctor Doctors Fighting COVID. Dr. Starts, thank you as well. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, in his inauguration speech at the start of his second term, the governor said his administration is ushering in a new era in stewardship for Florida's natural resources. DeSantis said he promoted water quality and touted $2.5 billion promised in his first term for Everglades restoration. And two weeks ago, he pledged $3.5 billion more. And while DeSantis has garnered praise from some environmental advocates for channeling more money into Everglades restoration, others say he comes up short on environmental issues. They're accusing him of greenwashing, and they say they want DeSantis to do more to combat climate change. And many of the state's waterways are in poor health. A new study puts Florida at the top of the list for the most polluted lakes in the United States. For more on this, I spoke with Eric Eichenberg, CEO of the Everglades Foundation. Eric, good to be with you, and thanks so much for appearing here on the Florida Roundup. Thanks for having me. So tell us about the governor's second-term efforts to continue Everglades restoration efforts. How impactful will they be? Well, I think it's important, as you point out, that they're being continued. And, and uh, the announcement that occurred uh, last week uh, on the fourth anniversary of, of the first executive order, the governor again outlined a very bold initiative to um, ensure that Everglades restoration is accelerated, that there are resources that he is uh, urging that, that these, these dollars be allocated to, uh, to, to complete these critical projects. Um, you know, he, he, he made it very clear that um, the Florida... Uh, the future of Florida is linked to our, our waterways, our, our Everglades, our, our drinking supply, and uh, certainly to the economy. So it, 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 was a, it was a significant announcement in Bonita Springs, and we look forward to working with the legislature to get it done. And certainly uh, that's the next step. Uh, can you hammer out what will be the specifics of uh, how these funds will be used for Everglades restoration and water resource protection. Sure. So, for example, listeners may be uh, may be familiar with the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan. It was passed by Congress, signed by uh, President Clinton back in uh, December of 2000, and here we are now, 23 years uh, uh, implementing this plan. And it calls for a variety of above ground reservoirs and other infrastructure components within the Everglades ecosystem. So, from um, Lake Okeechobee to the east, to the west, certainly south, uh, down through the uh, central Everglades, and ultimately all this goes down to Florida Bay and Everglades National Park. So specifically, the dollars that the governor is asking be committed over the four years, uh, a reservoir on the Caloosahatchee uh, River um, that is critically important, it's about 11,000 acres, it's going to uh, receive water that comes through that local 
basin runoff, if you will, also some lake water that would go through this reservoir. There's going to be a component to make sure that the phosphorus and nitrogen, the pollution that's in the water, is, is, is taken out. So you're delivering clean water into the Caloosahatchee. Similar south of the lake, right smack in the middle of all these sugarcane fields, another above-ground reservoir is being constructed as we speak, and dollars okay. from the state would be going to support that as well. So that's just two examples of a variety of projects uh, throughout the uh, South Florida Water Management District. And when we talk about water and nitrogen pollution, let me ask you as a follow-up. In his first week in office, the governor issued an executive order establishing a blue-green algae task force. Water scientists from all over the state working on ways to reduce toxic blue-green algae. They came out with some recommendations in 2019. Uh, Only a few of those have been enacted since then, however. What about that effort, and does it need more momentum? Well, you're you're right. Uh, we are we do have some challenges as it pertains to uh, water quality. I, I will also uh, point out that Florida has has not met what's called a total maximum daily load of phosphorus uh, entering into Lake Okeechobee from the north. Um, so we have we have a polluted lake. We have other water bodies that are impaired, man-made uh, challenges, and you know the governor can only do so much. He's, he's called for these commissions. He's, he's taken the politics out of the topic, and he's put on experts who are in this field who are making recommendations, but it ultimately comes down to the Florida legislature. And it is, you know, it's our hope that with new leadership, House, Senate, uh, they can see the challenges that we're describing here, and um, additional steps can be taken. Uh, north of the lake is where um, all of these hot spots of water pollution are occurring. Uh, it's our hope that the new commissioner of agriculture can roll up his sleeves, work with the community there, with the Department of Environment, uh, Environmental mm-hmm. Protection, and uh, let's see some real results uh, on the water quality entering Lake Okeechobee. Certainly, uh, supporters of the Everglades have hailed this commitment by the governor to uh, further restoration efforts. And at the same time, some environmental groups have accused Governor DeSantis of greenwashing, you know, the idea that he uh, gives lip service to supporting the environment but doesn't necessarily follow through. As CEO of the Everglades Foundation, what's your response to the critics out there? Well, it's a lot of noise. It's uh, my view. It's irrelevant. Uh, You always have a chattering class that... uh, you know, would rather um, chirp from the sidelines. Uh, But be that as it may, uh, we see firsthand. I mean, the governor, you mentioned days into office uh, four years ago. I I will submit to you the most significant decision, which was was, was was a moment in leadership, was firing the governing board of the South Florida Water Management District to install nine men and women who fully understand the governor's vision for Everglades restoration to make sure water is flowing down to the Florida Keys, down to Everglades National Park, uh, 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 leveling the playing field so that Big Sugar is not driving the decisions that were happening under previous uh, the previous administration. Um, this governor has stood up to that. And what's happened over the last four years is we've had the most significant momentum around the Everglades because the business community is engaged, realtors, fishing boat captains, um, small business owners along the coast who rely upon a tourism-based economy. All of this now is allowing us to see the results mm-hmm. of this hard work, and we are as optimistic today that we're going to get there, and it's thanks to leadership that we're seeing out of the governor's mansion. That's Eric Eichenberg, CEO of the Everglades Foundation. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Well, to offer some context on what's happening with Everglades restoration and other challenges facing Florida's natural resources, we're joined by a trio of environmental reporters from our partner stations around the state, Jenny Stoletovich with WLRN, Steve Newborn with WSF, and Amy Green, WMF. I want to thank you all and welcome you to the Florida Roundup. Thank you. Nice to talk with you. 
Well, Jenny, let me start with you. Um, some strong support there from Eric Eichenberg, CEO of the uh, Everglades Foundation. But what can you tell us about the governor's records on Everglades restoration in his first term? And what does it tell you about how the money he's promised for the Everglades in his second term will be spent? Right. So he has, um, you know, designated more money for Everglades restoration. We've seen just a, a huge windfall for, for the Everglades. Um, in part, that's because he's tapped into that Amendment 1 land and trust acquisition trust money um, that voters approved in 2014. You might remember that. It was mm -hmm. a third of DOC st stamp taxes would, would go to buy conservation land. And and uh, there was some dispute over how whether that would just be used to purchase land or also be used for Everglades restoration. The folks that wanted it for Everglades restoration as well won. And now that money is is going a long way towards funding restoration projects. Yeah, what about the accusation of greenwashing? Eric Eichenberg says it's just noise, he basically dismisses it, but uh, how do environmental advocates rate the governor on other environmental challenges that uh, the state faces and how he's responded to them? Right, so I think the problem is he's not doing as much on the thornier issues of pollution. Um, restoration is a big headline-grabbing, easy-to-understand uh, concept in, in in the environmental world, but the but the harder stuff dealing with water quality, septics, um, you know these uh, agricultural runoff, stormwater pollution, uh, setting regulations, coming up with rules and enforcement that is harder to do. There was an analysis of uh, of enforcement under him, and it found while inspections were up, and this was from 2020. Um, mm -hmm. actual enforcement was down. So it's, again, those are sort of thornier issues that don't get big headlines. Um, and, and he's not done as much on that. Just in the last 30 seconds or so before we need to go to a break here, Jenny, there's some divisions in the environmental community, right, over Everglades restoration. The foundation, the Everglades Foundation last year settled a lawsuit with its chief scientist. Briefly, what was that about? So that, that really goes back to this um, Everglades and uh, uh, agricultural area reservoir. This is a big giant reservoir that DeSantis has said is sort of the crown jewel of, of restoration under his administration. And there were some real questions about how that reservoir was planned and whether, whether it would work. It was initially supposed to be three times as big. Um, it was a complicated process to get it through mm -hmm. the, the state, lots of fighting from Big Sugar and the lawmakers. Um, and so it was it was squeezed into a much smaller footprint. And so there's disagreement on whether or not that will actually work. Uh, the chief scientist who left did a lot of modeling on that on that project. Um, and so the foundation sued him because when he left, he took a lot of his information with him. Right. Uh, leave it there. But we'll be right back with more. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. 
And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Well, Governor Ron DeSantis has pledged $3.5 billion towards the Everglades in a second term, continuing the focus on Everglades restoration that began when he was elected in 2018. Now, the governor's policies have the backing of the powerful Everglades Foundation. But how has the state's environment fared under the DeSantis era? And as the state's population grows, what's being done to safeguard our waterways and natural resources? We're continuing now with environmental reporters Jenny Stelatovich of WLRN, Amy Green of WMFE, and Steve Newborn of WUSF, 305-995-1800. Steve, let's go to you now. Florida has spent quite a bit on land acquisition to help preserve the state's wildlife corridor. Why is that important, and how do you see that factoring into all of this? Well, as you know, Melissa, the state has been growing at record paces in the last, I don't know, 50, 60 years. And what this is doing is creating kind of a squeeze play on our natural areas. So the room, the space that animals have to migrate is is being cut off at choke points. So about 10 years ago, this group called the Florida Wildlife Corridor Expedition formed to bring attention to this kind of to to connect these wild areas before they become subdivisions or you know permanently uh permanently developed so they undertook a couple of thousand mile treks uh first from the tip of the everglades at flamingo all the way north to the okefenokee swamp in georgia and then a couple of years later from the lake wales ridge in the middle of the state across the green swamp through the big bend to the alabama border and uh i got to tag along with with them it was a fascinating trip and i got to personally see parts of the state that I had never seen before, and I imagine a lot of people in the state don't. So what this did was it basically transformed what was only being talked about by environmentalists and kind of esoteric plans, and they managed to get the ears of state officials, and it resulted in 2021 in the passage of what is called the Florida Wildlife Corridor Act, and that calls for pumping $300 million a year into land preservation. And we just saw this uh, earlier this week. Two parcels worth nearly $2 million uh, were purchased in uh, Osceola County, a place called the Collins Ranch. And along the Rainbow River in Marion County, that's uh, along Rainbow Springs. If anybody's been there, it's just a gorgeous Class A spring. And um uh, this this really has finally caught the ear of politicians in a way that it never has before. So if anything else, this is definitely a win for the governor and the Republicans that are uh, holding sway in Tallahassee as far as the environment is concerned. Now, 305. Oh, sorry. Oh, no go problem. Uh, go ahead, Matthew. I was just going to say 305-995-1800 is the number to call. You can also send us a tweet at Florida Roundup. Uh, let's go to Rhonda in Clewiston, I believe. Rhonda, you're on the air. Yes, hi. Can you hear me? Sure. Um, yeah, not unlike the previous conversation regarding COVID, I think that the um, the governor and some of his followers have been in denial, and I think that the governor is telling a lot of people what they want to hear. They don't want to hear bad news. Um, he's put an awful lot of uh, emphasis on doing things like spreading peroxides out in the water to kill algae when it's really source reduction of what Eric Eikenberg was talking about before, the, the phosphorus and the nitrogen that's going to make the biggest difference. I think he's also been in tremendous denial about climate mitigation, um, focusing entirely on adaptation, um, meaning coping with sea level rise and the increasingly severe storms, but not doing anything about reducing greenhouse gas reductions. Um, he uh, he appointed a blue-green algae task force and then only right. took a handful of their um, recommendations to heart. We need effective teeth for enforcement of the best management practices. We need stronger development restrictions, which is not happening right now. We need not, uh, He spent $50 million just in 2022 on rescue and rehab facilities for manatees, but only mm. less than $200,000 to feed the thousands of them that are starving out in the waterways. Right. And lastly, I just want to say that um, we all respect Everglades Foundation, and I believe that they, uh, Eric Eikenberg specifically, should show a little bit more respect to us, uh, Sierra Audubon, the other groups that we work with together on Everglades. 
to call our comments about DeSantis noise and chatter is unacceptable, and I, I fully expect an apology from him because they are the ones who helped install this governor. Rhonda, thank you so much for your call and for weighing in on that. Uh, Amy Green with WMFA, let me bring you into this conversation. You've done quite a bit of reporting on Governor DeSantis on climate, on the environment, and his kind of record after that initial uh, onrush of goodwill from environmentalists at the very start of his his first term. Uh, what can you tell us about that? How does where does he stand on the climate? What are what are people saying about uh, where he, what he needs to be doing uh, in terms of whether he's doing a good job of, of uh, stewarding the environment in Florida or not? Yeah, well, the caller makes a lot of good points. You know, water quality was one of the top issues that DeSantis ran on back in 2018. And you'll remember, you know, back then Florida was experiencing this horrible outbreak of toxic algae. And DeSantis, as a candidate for his first term as governor, um, promised to clean up Florida, Florida's waterways. And he has put a lot of money toward Everglades restoration and other water quality projects. But some might say, you know, some might question how successful the governor has been at that goal. He appointed a Blue-Green Algae Task Force, which produced uh, many recommendations toward cleaning up Florida's waterways. Um, and uh, those recommendations uh, were um, supposed to be included in a piece of legislation um, called the Clean Waterways Act. Um, that the legislature approved uh, a couple of years ago. And that legislation has been criticized by many in the environmental community for not including more recommendations from that uh, Blue-Green Algae Task Force. And then, of course, you know, we are continuing to have this horrible manatee die-off in the state of Florida. And that is a problem that's related to water quality problems in the Indian River Lagoon. And, you know, just to touch briefly on, on climate change, um, you know, again, I think a lot of the environmental groups would you know, applaud the governor for the action that he's taken on Everglades restoration. But I think they also, you know, he's also faced a lot of criticism for not doing more on what is arguably the state's biggest environmental threat, which is climate change. Um, he has um, established this large um, program called Resilient Florida that's aimed at fortifying the state's infrastructure against uh, rising seas and more destructive hurricanes, um, but he has done very little when it comes to moving the state toward cleaner energy. And of course, fossil fuels are responsible in large part for climate change. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Amy Green, the caller mentioned manatees. You've talked about it as well. How are the manatees doing this year? Well, the manatees are having, you know, they had a better year in 2022 than they did in 2021. And of course, in 2021, it was a record number of manatee deaths in Florida, more than 1,100 manatee deaths in 2021. In 2022, we had 800 manatee deaths. And there's mixed opinion about why that is. Um, you know, some people think that um, it points to success um, in the wildlife agencies undertaking this unprecedented effort to feed manatees in the Indian River Lagoon supplemental lettuce. Um, and the caller pointed out a lot of that lettuce is is uh, funded by donations. Um, you know, there's also been restoration projects aimed at uh, restoring seagrass in the Indian River Lagoon. Um, and um, and then, you know, there's also the concern that, you know, so many manatees already have died um, that the population has been reduced to a point that we're reaching a, a point now where fewer manatees are dying. Jenny Stelatovich, Steve Newborn. Let's go uh, first to Jenny, then to Steve as we're tight on time, your final thoughts about uh, where Florida stands in terms of its environmental efforts. Jenny, then Steve. Well, I think Amy's right um, in talking about climate change and the, the need to, to deal with the um, causes and not just mitigate and make, a, or not mitigate, sorry, but make the, the, the state more resilient. We have to look at what's causing it. And, and that goes directly to water quality as well. We have a terrible water quality problem that um, is just going to get worse as the population swells, development spreads. We have, especially down here in southeast Florida, we're losing the green space we need uh, to help deal with the with the water quality and also uh, help fend off hurricanes. Steve Newborn. 
Well, on my side of the state, the Tampa Bay area, we've been having terrible red uh, tide problems. Uh, this happened actually really worse last year after the Piney Point um, phosphate plant leaked into Tampa Bay. And shortly after that, there was a huge red tide bloom and uh, millions of fish died in Tampa Bay. Well, it happened again this year, not because of Piney Point, but they believe because of Hurricane Ian, uh, when it slammed into southwest Florida, uh, it created this huge outflow of all the stuff that's in people's garages and backyards, mm -hmm. fertilizers, gasoline. And if you look on a um, on a satellite map, you can see this huge plume of fresh water going into the Gulf. That triggered yet another red tide bloom, and we've been dealing with that ever since Hurricane Ian in this area. Uh, everywhere from Collier Lee counties up the coast to Sarasota, Manatee, and into Tampa Bay area has been plagued with red tide. And, you know, this doesn't just affect the people going to the beach. It affects hotels. It affects seafood restaurants, right? You don't want to eat that grouper sandwich and when so it's that, that's, like that's that's an ongoing tide. That's an ongoing problem, and I, I'm so glad you mentioned it. And uh, we are right. out of time, but thank you so much, all three of you, environmental reporters, Jenny Stiletovich, Amy Green, and Steve Newborn, bringing us up to date on the state's ongoing environmental challenges from all corners of the Sunshine State. Thanks very much. You're welcome. And that's our show, The Florida Roundup, produced by WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville and WLRN Public Media in Miami. Heather Schatz and Natu Tway are producers. Bridget O'Brien produced this week. WLRN's Vice President of Radio and our Technical Director is Peter Mance. Engineering help from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels and Isabella De Silva. Richard Ives answers the phones. Our theme music by Miami jazz guitarist Aaron Lebos at AaronLebos.com. I'm Matthew Petty. And I'm Melissa Ross. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll be back next Friday at noon. <laughs>